0: This episode is sponsored once again by Better Help. Now, life can be stressful at the best of times, and it's understandable that in the wake of the past couple of years, some of us may be struggling with a few things. And sometimes, doing so whilst trying to still be the best that you can for those close to you, it can seem like a mountain that you just can't climb. We all need a bit of help sometimes. So, if there is that something that's stopping you from achieving any goals that you have, or is just interfering with your happiness and well-being, then perhaps BetterHelp can help you. What BetterHelp does is assesses whatever needs that you may have to get yourself back on track and matches you up with your very own licensed professional therapist from the vast array of skill set professionals that it has, all of whom are specialised in all manner of issues from family or relationship conflict, right through to depression and stress, for professional counselling for you. And just to clarify, This isn't self-help that's being advocated here. In less than 24 hours, you can be communicating with a therapist selected to best help you in a convenient and confidential online environment with a service available for clients worldwide, a much more affordable one than any traditional offline counselling, and one that even offers financial aid available for the service if it's needed, as well as support functions that you may not even find available to you locally. You're able to get in touch with your counsellor whenever you want to, you can schedule weekly telephone or video sessions with them if you wish, and the responses that you'll get back from them will be timely and thoughtful ones, all without the uncomfortable feeling that goes with sitting around in a waiting room, because nobody likes that, do they? It's so much better than that. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. Hello all and the warmest of welcomes back after a break to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. North Wales' premier one person and his very lazy cat, spare room based true crime podcast that seeks to recount for your listening delights those tales that you may not be familiar with. The often obscure or long forgotten tales from the darkest recesses of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My beloved Black and White Menace Peaks is here with me also, complete with a repaired bell that may just pop up now and again in the recordings going forward. And the most integral part is where you folks come in, the wonderful lot who keep me doing what I do, because without you, I'm just waffling nonsense to myself in my spare room. It's as fabulous as it always is having you joining me here today, which I thank you very kindly for doing so, and I hope, as always, that as the episode finds you, it finds you, and all that are dear to you, all good, all safe, and all well. So I'm back now for a good run of a few tales here on The Enthusiast. After a much needed break, things had gotten a bit full on, should we say, and I would always rather the best quality I can put out as I see it myself, rather than do a rush job. As I've said many times before, I set myself a massively high bar here on the show. But I am back now, and it's great to be back as well. Though I'm probably still recovering somewhat from CrimeCon a couple of weeks ago. It was tremendous fun to do and we all had a right ball. Plus it was so great meeting some of you guys there. And I look forward to doing again so the next time around as well. When CrimeCon returns in 2022 back down in the smoke over the weekend of the 11th and 12th of June. Now this year was great but next time will be even better because I know that me and some of the other hosts have discussed loads to help make it that much better, and we have a few things planned that you don't want to miss. Trust me, it's going to be epic. Tickets for the event will go on sale shortly, and the organisers of CrimeCon have kindly once again offered that if you book your early bird tickets, and you use the unique code ENTHUSIAST, you'll get at 10% off the price at checkout. How great is that? I look forward to meeting and greeting some of you guys there again. Can't wait to. So this time around then, I've decided to reach into the back catalogue of Patreon tales of the show, and I've selected one that when I did it a while back now, I proper tussled as to whether it should be an episode for the regular show instead. So here it comes. Sometimes they do eventually. I do have the latest Patreon episode almost ready to go, and quite a unique story it is too, and if you folks fancy hearing it sometimes exclusively for supporters, at the very least sometimes weeks or even months before it airs on the regular show, then it's so simple a Kardashian would marry it at the drop of a hat, and it's very reasonable to do as well. You just head over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there, always with that podcast suffix, or else you might not find it, Or you can skip all of that, for there's an ever-clickable link to it in the episode show notes. Now quicker than your electricity meter will soon be spinning around like John Travolta, you can be hearing tales such as The Final Straw, An Offering to the Angels, Horrors Over the Holidays, or Disfigured, to name just a few, with a new episode being added each month, and the latest one, as I said, is almost ready to go. My big thanks and shout outs this time around go out to new supporters, Daz Richardson, Honora Green, Jeremy O'Sullivan, Jillian Bain and Latoya P, plus Ashley Ives, Sam Collins and Ginger and Charm who have edited their support and Lindy Beaumont and Annie Lynch who have opted to annually support the show. It's so amazing of you all to do that folks. You all rule and I thank you very much for doing so. Now the episode I'm bringing this time around was written right at the start of the pandemic last year so I hope that gives a bit of context for something I say at the start of the tale and throughout. It is also one that I quite fancy will lead to a bit of a show meet up at some point as well as I've got a bit of an idea for it but that's some ways off yet. The episode deals with a truly horrific tale that I still can't believe isn't more familiar than it is in fact it's almost commemorated solely by a single plaque on a wall there was very very little to research about it but i did the best that i possibly could when i was doing so the episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events including crimes against children that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all bearing that in mind please join the true crime enthusiast for a tale that I've entitled The Madness at Mother Max. Pressure. There are times when we've all felt it, isn't it? Especially in circumstances such as we've just faced over the past two years. Sometimes people are under it constantly, whether that's to keep a business afloat in the most challenging of circumstances, or to juggle home life and caring for loved ones, or even just to maintain your own physical and mental well-being. It's always there somewhere. Now occasionally that pressure builds and builds and it needs to be released, but if it isn't eased or released, because circumstances get out of your control, or you aren't personally equipped to do this, then it can often just blow, which sadly can all too often result in destruction and devastation. The city of Manchester in the UK county of Greater Manchester surely needs no introduction at all as it's steeped in history and creation and is famous the world over. Its name is thought to stem from the Roman conquest of Britain specifically a Roman fort based on a hill at the meetings of the rivers Medlock and Irwell called Mamucium or Mancunium there is some discrepancy as to which it is but which translates to mean place of the breast-like hill and indeed if you tilt your head 90 degrees a fort on top of a hill would look like a side-on knocker wouldn't it from this beginning then Manchester grew over the years to be the world's first industrial city Emmeline Pankhurst founded what came to be known as the suffragette movement here in 1903 Rolls-Royce was founded here Ernest Rutherford split the atom here in 1917 The list constantly goes on, it's got loads of firsts and I could be here for the rest of the episode just talking about them. To me personally, Manchester is a city that I've always loved, I've got some very dear family living there and I've had some great times over the years with some great people there and it's been the birthplace of some of the real greatest music of all time, with bands that have formed part of such a beloved soundtrack to my life the likes of joy division the happy mondays oasis and the stone roses hailing from there what absolutely wonderful gifts for a city to give a eh? and it's manchester that we're off to for the episode Well, of course it is because otherwise why else would i be waffling shit about it now what kind of pubs do you like to go to Personally, I can't stand places that are filled with chrome and sofas and people take bloody Instagram photos all the time and it's got wanky cocktails and the music is just absolutely dreadful. I like a bit more of an old kick-to-bits backstreet boozer, the type of place where the only furniture is bolted to the floor, the bar staff have got more legs than they've got teeth and the clientele is proper rough as a badger's arse. But still welcoming and salt of the earth. Many years ago now, back in 1976, where we're off to, one such place was the Mother Max Pub at the junction of Manchester's Little Lever Street and Back Piccadilly in Manchester's northern quarter. Opened since 1870, it still stands there today, although, as it is set back in a back alley off the main road, it's quite a difficult one to locate. Now, unusually, the pub is named after a one-time landlady of another Manchester pub entirely. Mother, Nora McClellan, an Ulster woman who was the popular Irish landlady for 34 years at Manchester's Wellington Inn, being particularly welcoming to anyone who had a military background due to her late husband having been a sergeant major in the Irish Guards and several members of her own family having served in the Grenadier Guards. Now Mother Mac, as she became to be known, made the pub so much of a shrine to her late husband's military background and was so supportive of our armed forces that Manchester's Irish Guards Association made the popular and busy pub their unofficial headquarters, where it became the meeting place for their association meetings and host to many of their functions. A teetotaler herself, never touching a drop of alcohol in all of her life, she was very much loved by all of the wellington's customers whom she always took a great interest in and as a result turned the pub into an institution so successful was it and so beloved was she that upon her death aged 73 in 1973 the funeral was so well attended that the gridlock caused by it ground the city centre traffic to a halt As a tribute to her, it was decided by the brewery to the same year rename the Wellington after her, and from 1973, the pub was renamed Mother Max. Now today, the sign above the pub depicts a silhouette of the former landlady in her slippers, as was a familiar sight in her years there. But for many years after its name change, it just bore the words Mother Max. In a parallel with the red football side of the city of Manchester though, One legendary manager is hard to emulate, and following the name change, the pub began to lose some of its former glory. Although it was a favoured local of staff from the BBC offices in Manchester, the clientele over time changed to the extent where the pub earned itself a reputation as being quite a rough one, although still at the time a successful one. It also saw a succession of landlords being installed in there as tenants by the brewery who owned the pub. Whitbreads and by 1975 the landlord at Mother Max was a former soldier who'd spent time in the Royal Marines a 29 year old named Arthur Bradbury. At 7:30 a.m on the morning of Thursday the 17th of June 1976 Draymond John Garnett parked up in his wagon along back Piccadilly the narrow back street that the pub was located on jumped down from the cab and rang the doorbell. Because the pub was located in one of the narrow back streets it was a place that he always made an early stop at on his rounds to deliver beer as it was also in one of the busiest parts of the city and he liked to avoid getting stuck in the traffic. After a few moments the door was opened by a smiling and jovial Arthur Bradbury who invited John in and escorted him down to the cellar where he pointed out the two tanks that had been prepared to accept the beer delivery. Business as usual John passed him the valve through the cellar drop doors, returned back to the wagon, and after waiting the few moments it took for the attachment to be secured, turned on the pump and started the process of 180 gallons of beer gushing down the tube. So as this time-consuming process of filling the tanks was happening then, the two men shot the breeze over a pot of coffee, and when the tanks had been filled, the hose was retracted, the delivery docket was signed, and John Garnet was on his way to his next drop. Now if it hadn't been for the growing traffic as time wore on, John was later to say that he had considered staying for the other pot of coffee that was offered to him. He weighed up doing so, but decided that diligence must win, and he went on his way, accepting the gift of a packet of cigarettes from Arthur Bradbury. Diligence probably saved John's life that day. Shortly before 9am that morning, not long after John had gone, a voluntary cleaner at Mother Max, a friend of the Bradbury family named Anne Hennigan, had arrived at the pub to do the early morning straightening up, chucking the hoover around, emptying out all of the ashtrays, that kind of thing. Now Anne did this role for free to help out the couple and their three children, being especially fond of Arthur's wife Maureen, who she looked upon as a sort of daughter figure, and over the time she'd been doing it, since the previous year, when the Bradbury family had moved into the premises, Anne had established herself a routine. She would begin outside and work her way in in a systematic order, before at mid morning stopping to take breakfast and have a pot of tea with Maureen before then heading home. At ten past nine that morning, a typist in an upstairs office of a building that formerly stood on the adjoining Little Lever Street across from Mother Max glanced out of the window and saw Anne doing just this sweeping up on the pavement outside before making her way indoors through the front door the same typist was alarmed when she glanced out again about 45 minutes later to see thick black smoke billowing out of one of the ajar windows on the second floor of the pub and immediately went to raise the alarm within four minutes of her dialing 999 and the call being received a team of firefighters from the London Road fire station were at the scene smashing through the locked front door of the pub whilst the second team arriving just seconds later used a ladder to gain access to the premises through one of the second floor windows. The building was filled with dense acrid smoke and breathing apparatus was needed by all firefighters as they picked their way through the building searching for both the source of the fire and of course for any survivors who may be trapped in any of the various rooms the family of five who by that time it was established lived there it was soon discovered that the main starting point for the blaze was in the cellar of the pub which after a few minutes was extinguished with powerful jets of water with this blaze put out then the fire crews now began carefully searching the entire pub the team who had entered the pub from the second floor began picking their way through the already damaged building. But there was no sign of anyone in any of the bedrooms. Although the rooms on this floor were smoke damaged, they were relatively straight and tidy, aside from the main bedroom, where the drawers and wardrobe had been left open and clothing lay scattered around the room as though they'd been ransacked. The mattress was also missing from the bed. In the lounge on the same floor, The grim discovery of the corpse of the family pet cat was made killed by fumes from the fire but there was still no sign of any of the bradbury family the family alsatian dog shandy was found dead in the bathroom on the first floor it too overcome by fumes caused by the blaze and so making their way along a narrow corridor on the first floor the fire crew noticed what was unmistakably another separate blaze in the building, but this one coming from behind a sealed door, the glow of the flames clearly visible dancing across the beam of the doorway. The room where the fire was seemed to be a small storage room at the end of the corridor, no more than 10 feet square, and as a crew member opened the door outwards, they were at once faced with a backdraft of furnace-like conflagration. A jet of water was immediately directed at it and shortly doused the flames, sending up clouds of steam and remnants of material that floated around the scorched air. It was difficult to see inside the charred darkened room, but as their eyes grew more accustomed to the darkness, the firefighters noticed that the room had formerly housed the base of a dumb waiter that served the building, the shaft of which had acted as a kind of chimney for the fire, allowing the flames access to the upper rooms as it fed the fire with more oxygen. Now I had absolutely no idea what a dumbwaiter was when I first learned of this case, and when I looked it up, I found it was a small freight elevator or a lift that was intended to carry food, which in a light bulb moment, I could exactly picture then. This was a proper old-fashioned type one of these as well, with a two-section basket attached to a sturdy thick rope, that ran through a pulley to be hoisted up manually as the fire crew peered inside they noticed two existing seats of flame towards the corner near to this and as one of the firefighters ventured further inside the room to try and gain a better angle to extinguish these a blackened charred object at waist height barred his way it took a few moments before his experienced eyes realised exactly what the object was and at that point he backtracked out of the room Knowing he could touch nothing and had to extinguish the blaze from an outside position he had of course realized that this black and charred object was the remains of a human body, but at that moment he could not have realized the full horror that that tiny storeroom held because it wasn't just one body we were talking about in there that tiny store cupboard actually contained the remains of six people. Can you even imagine? It's something else that isn't it. By ten thirty that morning a twenty five strong fire crew were at Mother Max, preserving the scene as best they possibly could, whilst Detective Chief Superintendent Charles Horan, the head of Manchester CID, had taken overall charge of the already opened investigation. A cursory look at the smoke damaged premises convinced senior fire officer Jack Bicton that this had been no accidental fire it had been started within the cellar which if left would have taken out and gutted the pub anyway but an inferno had also started on the first floor with no evidence of the fire having spread from the cellar up to it the bar and lounge areas of the pub although they were extensively smoke damaged were not scorched so how does an accidental fire choose exactly where it wants to burn And why do six people shelter inside a store cupboard instead of using another exit to flee or for raising the alarm themselves? It's quite troubling indeed that isn't it? Detective Superintendent Horan was quoted in the press the following day as saying to the rapidly gathered reporters who had asked him what had happened I'm not going to theorise until I know more but we are satisfied that this is no accident they did not dive in there to escape the fire. Now there was more chance of seeing billy Ailish smiling than this being a bloody accident the home office pathologist called to the scene dr jeffrey garrett was taken into the building when the scene had been made safe to do so in order to make a record of the scene and to observe the bodies in situ the dead were all heaped in a pile one on top of the other stacked on their backs like logs in what was effectively a family funeral pyre but each person had been burned beyond the remotest possibility of any visible recognition. Such had been the intensity of the blaze in that small space. The uppermost body appeared to be that of a male lying on his back and facing the remains of the wrecked chute of the dumb waiter. Closer examination revealed that there was something across the mouth that could have formerly been a gag and the hands of the male had been tied behind his back with fabric some fragments of which had survived the blaze beneath him with only a leg showing until the first body was a short time later removed the second corpse lay this time a bigger body which appeared to be that of a female who had also been gagged and bound although this body with a hand secured with wire below was a second male who was found lying in a head downwards position close to the front of the remains of the dumb waiter. But this one with no signs of any gag or binding. The fourth body underneath was that of a small female, her left arm bent behind her back as if it had at one point been tied, although no sign of what may have secured her like this remained, and there was no sign of any obvious gag. Underneath, once again, was an adult woman with remnants of wire around her right wrist and her right ankle, and had also been gagged with cloth material again the remnants of which remained in place on the body finally at the very bottom of this macabre funeral pyre lay another male this body thought to be that of a boy again lying on his back his arms fastened securely behind his back with cloth bindings and who had again been gagged as the scene was photographed in stages and each body was discovered as one was removed as I've just described stacked around and amongst the bodies were found an assortment of items such as newspapers items of clothing a number of cushions and pillows and with the remnants of a mattress at the base of the pyre all easily combustible material that had been deliberately placed there to assist with the fire examination of the floor of the storeroom was to recover from the ashes and debris a key ring containing 14 keys two rings a cigarette lighter a padlock that had been used to lock the storeroom and some coins that were in the remains of a cash drawer similar to the type that you'd find in a shop's till now just imagine finding a scene such as that i'll just let it sink in somewhat for you you would absolutely carry seeing something like that to your grave with you wouldn't you you'd never. how would you even begin to try and forget something like that Dr Garrett was also shown the bodies of the Alsatian dog in the bathroom on the first floor landing and that of the cat in the second floor lounge no visible wounds were discernible on the body of either creature and an examination of each was later to show that they had died as a result of inhaling fumes from the fire which was deemed to have happened rapidly as although the dog had been found in the bathroom and the door had been closed there were no scratch marks upon the door Where Shandy would have desperately tried to have scrabbled out in a panic. So, once the position of each of the bodies had been carefully logged and the scene photographed and documented, the bodies were removed from Mother Max and taken to the Manchester mortuary, less than a mile away from the scene. Full post mortems began the following day, conducted by Dr. Garrett, in which the bodies were examined in the order that they'd been discovered. Methodically, it wasn't a case of just. Right, we'll do this one first, and then you can choose the next one to do. Now, I did wonder if, by law, if you had to do them in the order that they were discovered, but I can't imagine that this is a scene one would come across often enough to question this, really. And I like the methodical approach method myself. Now, they hadn't been officially identified by this time. Remember, this is long before the discovery of DNA profiling by Alec Jeffries but you don't have to be Gascoigne to work out that with six bodies found and the five established occupants of mother max missing plus the volunteer cleaner who by that time had been reported missing by her husband after she'd not returned to their home in hill lane in the manchester district of blackley as expected that both police and pathologist had a very good idea of who the bodies would turn out to be. The first body examined, as we said in the order that they were found, was that of a male child about 13 years of age. An examination of the internal organs showed signs that are commonly associated with asphyxia. The appearance of a number of petechial haemorrhages on the surface of the heart giving clear indication that the oxygen supply had been cut off, which led to the lining of the blood vessels becoming damaged and rupturing. Now, normal procedure would be to check the eyes of anybody for similar haemorrhaging as it would be apparent, but it was impossible to in this case as the eyes of this, and indeed each of the victims, had been burned away by the intensity of the fire. No evidence of any carbon in the air passages or carbon monoxide in the blood was found, so it was thought that this victim had stopped breathing before the fire had started with the cause of death being deemed as from suffocation, thought most likely caused by the gag placed across his mouth. Body number two, as we've said, was that of a female, and upon examination, an aged fusion of the woman's right knee joint was discovered, and again, the internal organs showed signs of asphyxia, and there had been a fracture of the left thyroid cartilage in the larynx, but no carbon or carbon monoxide the teeth of the woman were in a very neglected state and two rings were found on the remains of her left hand which when placed together with the injury to the knee was able to establish that the second body was that of Anne Hennigan this was confirmed by a husband who later identified the rings as belonging to her the dental records that were found to match the teeth of the corpse and her medical records which showed that as a child Anne had had an accident which had led to her requiring an operation that necessitated the removal of her right patella which corresponded with a fusion of the right knee joint so the first two bodies showed signs of asphyxia had been bound and were both dead before the fire had started but the third body was different This body was that of an adult male, who showed no signs of having been bound or gagged, or having no obvious other injuries present. But examination of the air passages to this body revealed the presence of carbon, and some evidence of heat blistering to the epiglottis, and complete with a blood level of 18% carbon monoxide, this was evidence an appreciable level enough to indicate that this male had been alive at the time the fire had started a combination of identifying the ring worn on the third finger of the man's left hand and a check of his military dental records confirmed that this was the body of Arthur Bradbury the fourth body to be examined was found to have suffered in a similar way to the first two that had been found but heartbreakingly this was a female child of about six years old she had an impression mark upon her neck that showed typical signs of ligature strangulation and the aforementioned asphyxia signs were present, but there was no carbon in the air passages, or any traces of carbon monoxide in her blood. The fifth body was that of a woman who'd been about five feet tall, wearing a bracelet on her right wrist, and two rings on the traditional marriage finger. She was also the only one of the victims to have shown any evidence of having recently eaten a meal, with the discernible remains of a cheese and onion pie being found in her stomach. Again. The body showed the signs of asphyxiation in keeping with the others but no presence of carbon in the woman's ear passages or carbon monoxide in her blood suggesting that both she and the little girl too had died before the fire had begun. The sixth and final body to be examined corresponded to that of another male a child estimated to be about 11 years old. There was a ligature mark complete around the neck of his body a fracture of the thyroid bone and the signs of asphyxia as present with the others and he too was found to have died before the fire had started. So in the days before DNA, it was over to the dentist for identification. Forensic odontologist Dr. J. Ken Holt examined each body and as we've said, was able by comparing of dental records and details of treatments received to identify the second body as that of Anne Hennigan, and the first and sixth bodies as being that of 11-year-old James and of 13-year-old Andrew respectively, Maureen's two sons from her previous marriage. There were inadequate records available to confirm the identities of the other two females, but due to the general development of each body, the jewelry found upon the older female, and the circumstantial evidence, it was accepted that these were the bodies of Alison and Maureen Bradbury. As we've said, military dental records had also confirmed that the third body was that of Arthur Bradbury, the one found that had been alive at the time the fire had started, and that showed no evidence of having been bound or gagged detective superintendent jack ridgeway of manchester cid was placed in command of the investigation and pop trivia quiz hot shots who may be a familiar figure to the true crime buffs among you who are very familiar with the yorkshire ripper case as he took charge of the five pound note uh, angle on that he attended the scene and was now satisfied that he knew the identities of those who died but what he didn't know was the circumstances that had led all six to perish in the fire except that someone had been determined that they would. The blaze in the storeroom had raged so because it had been focused into a confined sealed space and had been assisted with the chimney effect of the dumb waiter. But the pyra bodies had also been arranged and packed with combustible materials, clothing, pillows, etc., which had obviously been taken from the open wardrobe and drawers that were discovered upstairs someone had wanted that fire to be powerful so as the pub doors were locked from within and there had been no sign of forced entry or forced exit from the premises you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out who the chief suspect was yet arthur bradbury's body was found buried underneath two others so if he had killed them how could that have happened and why was he even in that storeroom Neighbours of the Bradbury family recalled later that when the family lived at their previous address, Leyland Street, in the Manchester area of Harper Hay, they were nice enough people, and by all accounts a happy family. Four years older than her husband Arthur, 34-year-old Maureen had been married previously, having two sons from her first marriage, and in 1970, completing the family by having a daughter with Arthur, Alison. Since leaving the army in the early 1970s Arthur had had a succession of roles and the family had moved around somewhat over the Manchester area even at one point spending some months on the Isle of Man in a disastrous attempt to run a boarding house. Now that hadn't worked out but undaunted and not put off by the pressures of managing such an establishment by 1975 he'd decided to try his hand in the pub trade and the brewery who owned Mother Max. Whitbreads had installed him in what had a reputation as a quite rough but ultimately successful pub Arthur was delighted with this and he and the family moved into the upstairs accommodation of the busy city centre pub and at first everything seemed to go well there at first being the first and only pub that Arthur had run the former regular soldier started well at it He managed to expel a few troublemakers and bar some of the more difficult customers from the premises, and generally brought some respectability back to a level it had somewhat slipped from in the early 1970s. He was remembered by the regulars at Mother Max as being a quietly spoken man, with a calm and sensible demeanour on first impressions, though it was noted that there were certain issues he could be outspoken on and would always give his opinion, regardless of offending anybody. He wasn't a heavy drinker really, but was known to socialise with the odd pint of mild now and again, and was generally considered cheerful and friendly by most people who met him, although someone who was known to boast openly quite often about how much of an expert in unarmed combat he was, and the time that he'd spent in the Royal Marines. But there was a dark side to Arthur Bradbury, the man had a tendency towards violence which police were later to discover was most obvious in his attitude towards his wife Maureen. Maureen's hairdresser later was to tell police that Maureen had confided to her that Arthur had been violent towards her on many occasions during their life together, once pushing her to the floor and stamping on her twisted ankle during a row, whilst another time he had physically tried to strangle her with the cord of the telephone. More than one of the regular drinkers at Mother Max told also of seeing the landlady with the occasional black eye or bruised cheek that she'd tried to cover up with foundation but had missed a spot or a red wheel on her neck or clear finger marks from where her husband had once again been thrown around his weight and directing it towards his wife. Maureen would typically try and hide this from customers. I mean, seeing the landlady regularly looking like she'd been sparring with Apollo Creed Battered black and blue wouldn't have helped bring customers into a welcoming atmosphere, would it? But although Maureen kept this from the customers as best she could, she would confide to her close friends about Arthur's behaviour. During the same period, staff at Mother Max described how they came in one day to find the upstairs living quarters trashed almost beyond belief as a result of Arthur throwing a tantrum one day over the minor matter of a cracked fishbowl he threw chairs about he turned over tables even put a couple of windows through even smashing the telephone into pieces enraged over something so trivial it transpired later that this was his usual behavior when things went wrong for him destruction for example when he'd been running the boarding house in the island man and this had gone tits up when he'd proven to be as good a proprietor as a boarding house as he was a landlord Its response back then had been to set fire to clothing and furniture in the premises in a clear attempt to burn down the property, possibly hoping for an insurance payout. This occasion had resulted in failure, but a clear pattern could be seen developing here. Arthur Bradbury had a dangerous violent streak and a particular interest in fire. One customer remembered later how he'd been discussing with Arthur one evening in the pub an atrocity that had occurred, a fatal fire in the locality that was heavily featured in the local newspapers, and Arthur had explained that if a body was properly burned by an intense fire, then no one could ever tell what had previously happened to it, the fire would render it impossible to. It was, the publican remarked casually, a very easy thing to do as well. Now running a pub isn't as easy as running a bath and after Arthur Bradbury had been installed as landlord at Mother Max profits soon began to dip and were nowhere in line with the pub's previous performances and the bosses from Whitbread soon became suspicious they weren't sure whether he was on the fiddle or generally was about as much use as an inflatable dartboard Only 8 months into him being installed as landlord at Mother Max Arthur Bradbury was to receive his first serious warning from the management at Whipbreads, revoking him for the pub stocks being down, but profits not reflecting this, and they left him in no uncertain terms what standards were required of him, or he was out. So briefly, with a kick up the arse like this, things improved, and for a month, things levelled out. But they were to deteriorate just as quickly, and in the middle of April 1976, just short of his 30th birthday, Whitbread informed Arthur Bradbury that he was to be fired. He was subsequently placed on two months' notice of dismissal, and he and his family were told to vacate the premises no later than the 19th of June 1976. This was just to be one more pressure amongst many. Maybe it was his experiences in the army in the early 1970s that had left him somewhat damaged or perhaps it stemmed from some long-buried childhood event, who knows. But it's fair to suspect that being told this news, and although it fell squarely on his shoulders as his own fault, it damaged him, it wounded his pride. But this self-inflicted wounded pride festered, and anger and resentment at the brewery, mixed with the desperation of the situation, lit a slow-burning but very definite fuse inside Arthur Bradbury. Following his notice of planned dismissal, as the day of their enforced departure from Mother Max drew ever nearer, life in the Bradbury household became increasingly tense, although outwardly, both Arthur and Maureen did their best to keep up appearances for the customers. Petite, attractive Maureen was still a usual chirpy self behind the bar, and Arthur would still stand there holding court and being a bit of a barrack room lawyer, and between the pair, they expressed confidence to all that would listen that it was just one of those things and they would soon be placed into another pub although noticeably it was arthur who was more vocal about this and who more firmly held this belief but inevitably as each day inched closer to them being out on their rear and they were still not accepted anywhere else the pressure built and built and the tension got worse and worse for it was not just a matter of the couple losing their livelihood but it was theirs and the children's home too that went with it, and with each hour that passed, the future looked ever increasingly bleak. On Wednesday the 16th of June 1976, just three days before they were due to leave Mother Max, Arthur and Maureen managed to obtain an interview for the position of steward and stewardess at the former Enville Street Social Club in Ashton-Underline. Indeed, when they returned to Mother Max that evening, both were satisfied that the interview had gone well and although Maureen was somewhat more of an open mind Arthur was practically certain that they'd been successful perhaps desperation such cloud in his mind that it was refusing to allow him to think realistically of the possibility that they hadn't been. And they almost were but neither was ever to discover that they'd almost been successful in persuading the club committee that they would be suitable for the role only falling short by just one vote. However, whatever they both truly felt about the interview and their prospects of success, within just a few minutes of the couple arriving back at Mother Max, an argument between them started, and soon the couple were full on rowing, oblivious that they were doing so in front of the few customers that were still in the pub drinking. Although Arthur was aware that the stock taker from Whitbreads was coming around in the morning, the take-ins from the previous couple of days were still in the pub and had not been banked as was custom and Maureen let Arthur know exactly what she thought of his attitude and blaming him for his lack of professionalism such as this being the reason that they were in such straits now unsurprisingly the row had alienated the drinkers who as quickly as they could had finished their drinks and made off not wanting to be in such an uncomfortable atmosphere It may be that Arthur had already planned the horror that was about to occur then, for when he finally closed the pub doors and locked up Mother Max for the evening, he was in a foul mood. Now, what happened for certain over that fateful night can never be known. It is known that John Garnett arrived to deliver his beer early the following morning, shared coffee with Arthur Bradbury, whom he was later to describe as, I quote, looking tired and somewhat dishevelled, and then he left. It's known that Anne Hennigan arrived to do her morning chores as per usual, and ten minutes after she was last seen by the typist, sweeping the pub on Little Lever Street, it's known that there was no answer at the pub as the stock taker from the whipbread brewery had arrived to check that the outgoing, troublesome publican was doing exactly that, getting ready to be outgoing, but he found no response and the pub doors locked. There was no answer when he tried telephoning the pub from a nearby public call box just a moment later either and there was never to be a response that day for just half an hour later smoke was seen billowing out of the windows. Anne's husband David was later to remark how he'd never trusted Arthur Bradbury finding him too boastful about his former military career how he'd been a commando schooled in the art of unarmed combat to listen to him he was a proper triple hard bastard. David insisted that he'd been concerned, shall we say, about Arthur Bradbury for some time. Now here, is this in fact another case of people who are considered normal, if not particularly likeable, then unremarkable, but as soon as they've done something seriously wrong, they're described as having been in fact like bloody Jason Voorhees for years by several people who knew them who would say that to anyone who would listen. Do you know what I mean? Stories that just come out of the woodwork, but only long after the fact. And most of these people look like us. Before the fact, you'd pass them in the street and you wouldn't even give them a second glance, would you? But their actions take over and make them appear evil incarnate every time you see their image, don't they? Detective Superintendent Ridgway was soon made aware of the remembered conversation between Arthur Bradbury and the pub regular concerning fire and how a properly burnt body can prevent anyone discovering what had happened to it, which just served to increase suspicion against him. It seemed that the publican had appeared to have been suggesting that if a fire was sufficiently intense, then everything could be destroyed to the extent that any subsequent forensic examination of the scene would prove worthless there being no evidence left to find but of course Bradbury would have been wrong true, the fire had been severe and had probably been burning for a considerable time even before the smoke was noticed and the alarm raised and as a result the bodies were severely damaged but there is still evidence to be found and the evidence was piling up against Bradbury he was known to be a bit of a three pint rocky towards his wife He'd been under extreme pressure because of being forced to leave not just the livelihood of the pub but losing his and his family's home also. He'd previously made an attempt at arson and he'd been the last one of the six to die the only one to die as a result of being overcome by fumes from the fire. But if he was responsible then how did a pile of bodies that were already dead come to bury him? The answer was to be found in the dumb waiter. The scenario that was eventually pieced together, that was offered at the inquest, which was held in Manchester's coroner's court, on Thursday, September 23rd, 1976, was as follows. The night before the carnage, Arthur and Maureen, as we'd said, had been having a blazing row in front of their customers, and it was entirely possible that their row had continued long after closing, only becoming worse now the children would have been long in bed by such time either asleep or listening to what had become by that time a familiar occurrence for them Maureen and Arthur furiously violently rowing but this time too violently so Arthur had killed Maureen in a fit of rage but instead of that being the end of it surely that's atrocity enough as well isn't it it was merely the momentum for the then systematic murder of his entire family now it's one thing to kill your wife in a fit of rage but to then kill your entire sleeping family you've got to be completely over the edge to be so unbelievably cold and murderous haven't you like the pressure has built and built until it can't anymore and it just erupts it was impossible to establish the precise timings and sequences of events so it wasn't clear as to whether Bradbury had left Maureen immediately where she was after he'd strangled her and may have even agonized somewhat over what to do next or in the full grip of madness he may have just proceeded without mercy and went on straight away to strangle each of the children there was no sign of any struggle in any of the children's bedrooms so it seemed that wherever Bradbury's actions did them efficiently but even if they had woken up they perhaps wouldn't have worried to find him on their beds after all he was their father and stepfather a man of reasonable strength and fitness would be able to overpower and dispatch children of that age and stature very quickly and easily and of course it was Bradbury's favorite boast to chuck about that he was a trained commando who could unarmed combat with the best of them But the leap from father to killing machine can surely only be one when all normal reactions, feelings, emotion and sense just aren't there. There is something seriously wrong to have done that, isn't there? And it's hopefully a state that none of us ever find ourselves in. Was this what had occurred here? Was Bradbury acting like an automaton while he was doing this? I know it's awful to think about, but even worse to consider is the bindings to each of the victims if each of them were killed first before being placed in that storeroom then why truss up their hands behind their back or ensure that they were gagged if they were already dead what is the purpose of it unless they were still alive when they were each trussed up like this and were perhaps made to watch as one by one each were killed the mother first then the children Or was the anger directed at Maureen and she was forced to watch her children die one by one in a spectacle that went on for who knows how long. You don't even want to think about it do you? It's the absolute stuff that nightmares are made of. Whatever the scenario, whoever died first and in which order, no one can ever know. But at some point during the night, Arthur Bradbury had a dead family that he made into a human bonfire. I'm not trying to be disrespectful phrasing it like that but that's the best description that they can be for such horror. The mattress was found missing from the main bedroom so at some point he carried that down and placed it onto the storeroom floor. The younger of Maureen's sons from her previous marriage James was carried down and placed on here first off before Bradbury followed this up with the boy's mother his own wife Maureen. Around these two He packed several items of clothing and paper goods tightly, ensuring that there was plenty of incendiary material. On top of these, his own six-year-old daughter Alison was placed, by which time the pyre would have reached a height level that was roughly in line with the entrance gate to the dumb waiter shaft, and the older boy, Andrew, was placed inside here, bent at the hip and curled into the side of the carriage of the wooden hoist. Which, although it was just 21 inches square at the base and three feet high, had been large enough to take the boy. It was thought that the entire task of doing this would have been hard, exhausting work that would have taken at least an hour. But it was certainly done by 7.30am the following morning, when a composed and smiling Arthur Bradbury had welcomed the drayman John Garnet like absolutely nothing had happened. He had even cheerfully given him a pack of cigarettes as a parting gesture. Once John Garnett had left, and possibly even whilst Mrs. Hennigan was still busy with her cleaning, in a final defiant act against the brewery that he believed had wronged him and set all of these events into motion, Bradbury had opened the valves on the beer tanks that had just been filled and poured the lot down the drain, 180 gallons of beer worth nearly a thousand pounds. Now, this process would have taken some time, and he'd left Mrs. Hennigan upstairs bustling about whilst he did so. Either had incredible nerve, or had gotten past the point of caring about anything by that time. Anne Hennigan was, as we've said, in the habit of stopping for tea and toast with Maureen whenever she'd finished her chores, which she clearly wouldn't have done that morning. Now, by this time, Arthur Bradbury, a killing machine who had strangled four people, annihilated his own family, had already chosen to let the Drayman leave, and he may even perhaps have unsuccessfully persuaded Mrs Hennigan to leave the pub unmolested before she saw something that she shouldn't have, after all, having access to all of the upstairs rooms of the pub. Perhaps he told her that Maureen wasn't well that day, or that she was out, or busy. He may even have wanted to spare the kindly family friend. Or he may have indeed thought none of this, and killed her shortly after she'd arrived, and went inside after sweeping the pavement, by that time already steeped in bloodlust, and not batting an eyelid about taking another life. In the event, Mrs. Hennigan was probably attacked suddenly from behind, for no screams were heard, and strangled with a cloth ligature, with the fabric being placed into her mouth when she'd stopped breathing. Whatever the sequence of events that had happened, by 9.15am that morning, mrs hennigan was dead bradbury then carried her body up to the first floor storeroom used the pulley to raise the carriage that held the body of andrew and placed her underneath this head first in the space at the bottom of the dumbwaiter it's impossible to know which of the fires the one upstairs or downstairs in the cellar was started first but both of them were certainly burning when arthur bradbury found himself back in that storeroom looking down at the carnage he'd just invoked. His wife, his two stepsons, even his own daughter and an innocent friend of the family, all dead because of his own failings. Later, police found a large suitcase stashed in the cellar. It was packed with Embassy and Benson and Hedges cigarettes, six bottles of Bell Scotch whisky, and two bottles of Southern Comfort. Whilst in the bedroom was a plastic container with two hundred and seventy-nine pounds in. It's possible that Arthur Bradbury was planning to take these items away with him, yet nowhere did investigators find any case of clothing. Perhaps this was his plan, but then he had a momentary glimpse of sanity, and confronted by the horror that he'd just committed, saw only one possible way out, for police were certain of one thing. As Arthur Bradbury stood there, flames engulfing the five innocents he'd just massacred, he pulled the door of the small room closed behind him and threw himself, alive, onto the pyre of the family that he'd once loved. With the body fat leaking from the corpses and the well-packed bonfire, plus being fed by the fresh air from the dumbwaiter shaft, the fire intensified quickly. Soon, the rope that was holding the carriage that contained Andrew's body was alight and burned through until it separated. Dropping the wooden box onto the body of Mrs. Hennigan. A short time later, the wooden base of the hoist itself had been reduced to ashes, and the bodies of both Anne Hennigan and Andrew had tumbled out, landing on top of their killer. This was accepted, and on Thursday, the 23rd of September 1976, a coroner's jury of four men and three women delivered a verdict of five counts of unlawful killing and one of suicide naming arthur bradbury as the person responsible mother max did reopen after the fire and was for many years run by long-serving landlord les dagnall as it resisted moving with the times and maintained its no airs or graces no nonsense backstreet boozer charm a rare remnant of old manchester in the northern quarter but when les retired in 2016 mother max was closed for a six-week refit and today it looks dramatically different yes some of the original features are still there it still has photographs of old manchester on the walls and the anaglypta wallpaper is still there although it's now been painted somewhat but gone is the snug of old and the traditional pub dividers instead being replaced with benches plants a painted bar and high clear windows that replaced the long-standing gloomy drape-filled panels. In keeping with proud memories of Mother Mac's love of the armed forces, the pub today still actively supports help for heroes and other charities for soldiers, but its new look is now a place that divides opinion. You only have to look at some of the online reviews for the place to see what I mean, and places like this are not up to everyone's tastes. One quote I found whilst researching the episode from a regular drinker there sums this up perfectly, with him saying rather bluntly I liked it as it was. It was a shithole, but it was my shithole. But no matter how much paint and tarting up there is, one thing that does remain still is the memory of the grisly history of the pub, the massacre perpetrated by Arthur Bradbury in a simple plaque affixed to the wall alongside the former pub entrance on back Piccadilly. It reads 40 years ago, the 29-year-old pub manager Arthur Bradbury was given notice to quit so he revenged himself the coward's way by killing all around him his 34-year-old wife Maureen his 6-year-old daughter Alison and his stepsons James and Andrew aged 11 and 13 respectively. The cleaner walked in on the carnage so he killed her too, and then set the pub on fire to hide the evidence. But justice caught up with him, and he ended up killing himself too. Six deaths on 18th of June 1976. Now who knows what goes through people's minds when they're faced with pressure and commit things like this. Sadly, it has to be a level that you can't imagine unless you find yourself in the situation, can you? But that's real darkness, isn't it? As I've said before, it's one thing to commit domestic murder in the midst of an argument, and the majority of people who are doing life for murder in UK prisons are there because they've done something similar. But to then kill another four people on top following this, three of them children, why did Bradbury not instead flee in the night? I mean, he put together a suitcase of things from the pub, alcohol, cigarettes, petty cash. So was this his original intention? But then, did he cold-bloodedly decide that the family should die as deliberate evil hand so they couldn't raise the alarm? Or perhaps at the moment that he killed his wife, one row too many and that pressure of him built and built, did Arthur Bradbury completely snap and become an automaton, resulting in the systematic, calculated carnage that we've heard about? Were his family murdered as they slept? Or were they bound and gagged and forced to watch or listen to their loved ones die? And why was John Garnett spared, yet Anne Hennigan slaughtered? So many questions with this one, isn't there, eh? Right? We can but surmise, though, and we'll never know, for Arthur Bradbury took exactly what happened, and his exact reasons for his actions, to his death with him. Now, it's a pretty horrendous case, this one, isn't it? It's a chilling example of what can happen when pressure builds and builds, until it can't anymore, and erupts and it's a case that I came across while I was researching one of the first series episodes of the show a few years ago now, the Beast of Manchester episode. Now the pathologist in the case, Dr. Garrett's memoirs, are a very worthy read. There's a link to them in the episode show notes. They contain details of infamous cases that he's worked upon, including this one, Trevor Hardy, and several notable others. It's well worth a look. Now as I said at the start as well, and considering the the place for a show meet i wanted to go there during the lockdown but i didn't have the chance to because it was closed for so long but it's one to park anyway that because i am going to go and visit it and sometime in the future as i said if anybody fancies i think it'd be a pretty good choice venue for a show meet think that's a good idea or is that a bit too macabre Now there is a case this one that I did look extensively for it but there is the best part of nothing available out there for researching about it which I think is quite shocking for such a horrific crime I mean don't you agree I can't believe it's as unfamiliar as it is But they always make the most unique ones that I strive to bring to you guys and ones that you know you're not going to find on bloody silly shows like True Crime Geraniums or True Crime Waterbutt, True Crime Castle on a Hill, all that crap. True Crime reading off Wikipedia, the amount of new show names that you see popping up, I wouldn't be surprised if nonsense such as I've just mentioned as names do pop up by now or they're coming soon anyway. I would love to hear what you guys think about the episode, The Madness at Mother Max, which you can get in touch with me to do so. There's a thread up in the show's Facebook discussion group as ever. I'm quite happy to hear from you wherever. You know that by now. So with that, it's about wrap up time here for the episode, which I'll get off and I'll crack straight on with the next one immediately. This is how it goes. You never just rest about on your laurels, always doing something in the background or it's always onto the next one. I thank you very kindly for joining me here for the episode and once again for your all complete kind support of the show. It really does mean the world. I will be back next time on The Regular Enthusiast so until we next speak I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you guys all good and safe times and I'll catch you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me and goodbye for now.